Cool. So Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children of God has given me. And then we have Romans 12, 10 to 16. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Well, we, as humans, are not made to be alone. And yet we are. 2.4 million adults in the UK of all ages, not just people who are older, suffer from chronic loneliness as one in four people. Loneliness is linked with psychological problems like alcohol and drug abuse, eating disorders and depression. One expert has written, loneliness significantly increases risk for premature mortality, which is basically another way of saying you die quicker. Loneliness is associated with a 50% increase in mortality from any cause. So if, you're, if you have a problem and you're lonely, it exacerbates that cause. It makes it comparable to smoking like 15 cigarettes a day. And it's more dangerous than obesity. There's something about being around other humans that changes us and consequences when it's absent. I mean, suicide is the number one cause of death for men aged 20 to 34. The number one cause. Surely loneliness is, is working in there. We're not made to be alone any more than we are made to be dangerously overweight or smoking nearly a pack a day. So these stats across, uh, these are stats across the UK, and I wonder, you know, is it better for those who are in the church? Sadly, the stats are probably pretty close. Then we religious people get to add another level of kind of like judgment on top. Judgmental people don't normally encourage honesty, if you haven't noticed. So you can be around a lot of people and still feel very lonely. It's very easy for that to be the case. Now, even though loneliness isn't good for us and we don't like it, often and it's not always our fault, but sometimes it is. Sometimes we choose it because we like being in charge of our own schedules. We like not having to look after others. And we love the freedom of getting to do whatever we want, whenever we want, without anything holding us back. But with that rugged individualism comes a cost, and the cost is being lonely. The cost is you don't know anybody, and you aren't known by anyone. Our Instagram looks amazing, but we're actually like not very happy. Now, for many of us, we've been lonely for so long, we think that it's normal. We think it's standard. It's someone who has only eaten McDonald's their entire life, day in, day out, every single meal, and they're fine with it. I mean, I would feel sad for that person. It's not only unhealthy, but they're like missing out on so much better food. By ourselves, we are by ourselves 
in need of rescue, lonely, with no power to accomplish this on our own. And so our shoulders slump a little bit, and we just think, well, this is just how life is. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be that way. Because Jesus rescues us from our individual loneliness and into his family. And this family is made up of people who have nothing to offer, and who, but who have been recreated into something good together. It's not out of anything good they've done, but by what Jesus has done for them. Jesus gives us this new family, and in this new family, Jesus is our brother. And we're actually going to look at three things that Jesus is by being in his family. First, he's our rescuer. Second, he's our brother. And third, he's our singer. So we'll start first with uh, rescuer. So God's plan from the beginning was to send Jesus. It all starts with God's plan. God the Father had the plan to send God the Son because he knew we aren't good enough on our own to get what we really crave. And that's what's going on in, in verse 10 here. If you look in your Bibles or your, your apps there, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God should make Jesus the pioneer. God saw us in this distress. He saw us and he sees you. You know, maybe nobody else knows, but you're never alone. God knows and he's done something already about it. He's already done something about it. It says Jesus was the pioneer there in verse 10. This isn't just like kind of like the American version of the pioneer on the West, um, you know, making log cabins and stuff. Uh, he was the one that went first. That's what that means. The originator, the founder. Jesus willingly took the step while we were all kind of slowly backing up. And he's the founder of our salvation. Now, salvation is a very churchy word, and maybe you get what it means, but really like a base level of what it means is rescue. Jesus is the founder, the pioneer of our rescue. So God's plan is for all humans to experience wholeness, newness, hope, joy, all the good stuff that we crave and all the good stuff that we search after. And originally we had that, but we've been, we made a mess of things because that's what we do as humans. I mean, we have a term for it. Like, I'm only human. That basically means, therefore, I will mess things up. That's what we do. That's not surprising. But God's salvation, God's rescue is how we get liberated from our brokenness, rescued to wholeness. So what exactly is Jesus the pioneer of? What is he the founder of? What did this plan of rescue look like? Well, it says both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So the plan was to make people holy. Now, what, what's the offer? Holiness? I don't remember really asking for that. I don't think like, a lack of holiness is what keeps me up at night. I don't, I don't think that I really pine after holiness. I've never been super anxious about my own holiness. I think maybe that's because we don't really use that word anymore. Maybe we misunderstand it. The way we use the word holy is kind of in a judgmental way, holier than thou, or that person's really holy means he's like, thinks he's better than everybody else. But holiness is the gift of goodness, not just the gift of acting good, but the gift of actually being good in itself. At the summer solstice, I went here, oh, if you can see it, to Mam Tor. Um, went to the top to view the sunset on the longest day of the year with a couple friends, and what we saw was a kind of holiness. It was a good thing in itself. Now, it, it might be easier for a landscape to be a metaphor for holiness because a landscape doesn't have to make decisions, doesn't have desires, doesn't navigate life in this kind of crazy world. But what does this kind of holiness, something being good in itself, mean applied to a person? What well, means your inward being, your heart, as the Bible uses it, the sum of all you are is good. That there is nothing bad. In fact, you are separated from everything that is bad. So I think actually this quest for goodness is something that we really do care about because we are kept up at night wondering if we're good enough. We are kept up at night wondering if, if we're enough at all. If you are enough, 
Why don't you feel satisfied all the time? Why are you not confident in yourself? How many charities prey upon that disease of, you know, you're not good enough, but if you give to us, maybe it'd be a little bit better. Hopefully we won't prey on that. Now, we like to be seen as good. Of course, it's very different than actually being good. Some might see that as a shortcut to actually being good. You know, I drive a certain kind of car, or I don't even drive a car, or I shop at this store, I buy this thing, I don't buy this thing, or I eat this food, I don't eat this food. You know, when you think about it, our culture is obsessed with holiness. We are obsessed with being right and being seen as right. We don't call it holiness, but it's the same idea. So God knows that we will never actually do enough good things to truly be good. We can do good things, but our actions will never have the power that we need to make us good. Our good acts aren't good enough to make us good, if you follow that. So Jesus, God himself, became the pioneer and rescued us. He became like us to take on our lack of goodness and through his own actions give us his goodness. Now, Jesus had to die because he wanted to put our brokenness to death. He wanted to destroy it completely. And Jesus didn't stay dead because he's God and he's more powerful than death. But his resurrection wasn't just like him flaunting it and showing off or something like that. It was a new life that he wants to share with us and give to us. And this new life means a goodness deeper than we've ever known and can attain ourselves. So Jesus is the rescuer. And the one reason why we make a big deal about the cross is because on the cross, something happened. Something really happened. It wasn't figurative. It wasn't just a nice idea. It was real. It was bloody. It was tangible. Jesus had to go through hell to give us heaven. And the Christian story of the gospel is not about removing tragedy or plugging our fingers in our ears to its reality. It's also not a promise to avoid suffering. It's how one gets through this world, especially when you're in suffering. So Christianity does not cure all loneliness. Being in a church does not cure all loneliness. Surprise, surprise. It doesn't claim to, but it offers us hope in its midst. So Jesus on the cross is the only thing that gives us hope when we feel the weight of the world, because he went first, and he took on the weight of the world himself. Only Jesus was able to do this. Now, the plan um, wasn't to make individuals holy, but to make a people holy. Holiness is something experienced in community, because even God himself exists in community, in the Trinity. Holiness is not individual. It's a communal thing. And this is why Jesus is our brother. Uh, The verse says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. The same family. Jesus isn't just our Redeemer, our King, our God, our Lord. He's all those things, but he's also our brother. He's the ultimate older brother. I mean, if we follow Jesus, we get him as the ultimate older brother, the kind who's been where we are before but can guide us through our questions, the kind who's checking in on us, the kind who has wisdom in life but doesn't use it as a way to kind of like make you feel really bad because you actually have no idea what you're doing and he doesn't use it as a self-righteous badge. It's a way to serve us because he really does love us and want the, wants the best for us. It means when we mess up, we have someone to go to. When we're in need of help, we have someone to ask. When we're lonely, we have someone to talk to. Often when we're suffering, we feel alone because we don't think anyone gets it and we don't think anyone understands. But Jesus has experienced it all, more than you will ever know. So Jesus is actually the only one who can say you actually don't get it. He knows what it means to, be, to feel rejected by his own family. He knows what it means to be rejected by peers. He knows what it means to be thrown under the bus for something that wasn't his fault. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He spent all of his waking hours with 12 men for years over and over and over explaining who he is and still at the end of the day, at the the very end of his ministry, they still had no idea what was going on. 
I think it maybe probably made him feel a little bit lonely. He knows what physical pain is like, what depression is like. He knows what being left for dead is really like, not just metaphorically, but literally. So if Jesus is our brother, we're never alone, no matter what we might be feeling. And if Jesus is our brother, that also means we get to be in relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. Because the relational bonds between the Father and the Spirit and the Son are so tight and so binding, they cannot be separated. So what Jesus does with us being united to him is he brings us into that relationship. And we're now part of this dance between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and we get to be a part of that. In an environment where all parties work towards the other's good, it's a mutual flourishing. So the Father, Jesus' Father, becomes our Father. And the Spirit, Jesus' helper, becomes our helper. Now, I don't know if you have a good relationship with your father or not. I hope you do, but I don't have a good one with mine. Some of you guys know my story. And my earthly father is one who used me to make himself feel powerful, to get himself out of trouble, and even to steal money. That is the opposite of my heavenly father. my, My heavenly father is good in all ways. For those who have had the gift of a good earthly father in your lives, that's amazing, and thank God for that. But the heavenly father is just a completely different kind of good. It's not just like a good dad and like slightly better. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, even good fathers make mistakes. Even good fathers are limited. As humans, we aren't all powerful. We can't be everywhere we want to be. But God, our Father, can. And through Jesus, we have a new Father. And the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the helper by Jesus. You might find, them, find that in the, gospel, in the Gospels. The Spirit is who empowers us to live in a new way day after day. That's what the Spirit does in our lives. And it's easy to act like a Christian now, like with everybody in a church service and all that, Not so much when your kid wakes you up earlier and when your boss is horrible. The Spirit is here to enable us, to equip us to live the way that Jesus' siblings should. The Holy Spirit was involved in bringing back Jesus from the dead and bringing life to God himself. And that same Spirit is in us now, right now. Do we take advantage of that power? Or do we just try and rely on ourselves to be good? Through Jesus, we not only get a brother, we get a family the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So we get a heavenly family, and we also get a new earthly family. We are siblings. So we get the God family, but we also get a new family here on earth with each other. Verse 11 says that all who follow Jesus are part of the same family. We are siblings, brothers and sisters here in this room. So not only do we get the spiritual realities of Jesus being with us, we get the more easily felt, tangible realities of each other being here together. We've each been plucked out of our own kind of separate lives, siloed off lives and brought into a loving, nurturing family that's on the mission to love others together. Now, this is where I'm supposed to explain the idea of like a utopian Christian society that we all get to live in, that is the church, except it doesn't really work that way, does it? (laughs) Some of us have maybe experienced that in fleeting moments, Um, some not so much. I mean, the idea of a church resembling the spiritual family that we're supposed to be can be ludicrous to some and even hurtful. Not many of us have experienced that kind of family infighting, politicking, using others for our own gain, not really being all in, though you say you are. And if you've come from not kind of the best family background, you're probably thinking, like, why create a family at all? Like, why just skip that whole family thing and do something else? Well, every earthly family has its own dysfunctions, some more than others, like mine. Generally, the root of dysfunction in a group is where the leaders are. In a family, that's the parent or the parents. 
Now, things can go wrong, but when something is dysfunctional, that means more like things are being led in a wrong way and are, are being uh, perpetuated in a wrong way, and that the disconnects in relationship are ongoing and they, they aren't dealt with, dealt with. That's the difference between a family that isn't perfect and a family that's dysfunctional. Now, the major difference between our earthly families and our spiritual families, of course, are the leaders. We have earthly parents, but our heavenly parents, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, those are those, those is who lead our family. So that means when we have problems, we don't have to disrupt everything and everyone else. We don't first look to each other. We look to the Trinity. In a healthy earthly family, the kids aren't in charge. The parents are. And in, not in like a commanding, overwhelming, and, and domineering kind of way, but in a way that allows for freedom, freedom to fail even. So we are a family. That's part of who we are. Jesus does not leave room for people who follow him and are not connected to a church. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. And also, you just aren't good enough to be on your own. We need the church probably more than any of us rugged individualists really believe. We really, truly need the church. Now, I'm an older brother. I have two younger brothers. When I was growing up, my brother, who's two years younger than me, um, always wanted to like play games. He always wanted to hang out. He always wanted to do stuff together. And we did sometimes, but they were definitely sometimes, maybe more than not, where I want to do my own thing. I didn't want to hang out with my little brother. I wanted to like hang out with my friends, do my own thing. He'd ask to play some board game or something and seek my attention. I just couldn't be bothered. I just wanted to, yeah, do things my own way, which is obviously not a good way to treat your own brother. Thankfully, that's not how Jesus acts. It's not like Jesus is kind of like, oh, these guys. Okay, well, it's like having like a weird uncle or something. Just got to like explain it to your friends before you meet them. But Jesus says he's not ashamed or uh, Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He isn't like sheepish. It's like, uh, sorry, but yeah, their backgrounds, you know, they're just kind of strange. I mean, sure, we all have family members we'd rather not claim, but he's not like that. He's not uncomfortable. He's not apologetic. And if you've ever gotten nervous around someone who's really, really, really ridiculously good looking, whether you're with someone or not, and you're just like, all of a sudden you're nervous because a person's really good looking, you know, why is that? Because you want to make some kind of good impression, and you know you don't match the standard of that ridiculously good-looking person, and so you present yourself better than what you are because you want to match their standard. Well, if that's true for someone who's, like, good-looking, what about Jesus and us? I mean, it's a whole new level. Here's a scene. You're there chewing on a sausage roll with some kind of unknown stain on your shirt, and you haven't showered today. You probably smell a little bit, and the hottest, most fit guy or girl comes into the room and wants to hang out with you. Like, there's like stuff all over your face as you're like kind of agog. Um, But Jesus is not ashamed to call us sister. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother. We don't have to worry about kind of matching his standard. We we won't. It just is impossible. He's actually excited that we're in his family. As we gather together, Christ is singing with us. His voice joins ours as we praise God together. And what does he sing? It says there in verse 12, it says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. Even Jesus points to the Father. Even Jesus sings God's praises. He could have said, I'll sing my praises. I mean, Jesus has lots of praises of his own to sing. But he points to the Father, even when he's singing with us. So to, to, to declare someone's name is to talk about the authority they have, is to talk about their power, their importance over everything. And this is the song that Jesus sings to us. God is over all. God is above all. And when we're gathered, even as we just sang earlier, and we'll continue to sing today, Jesus sings out, praise be to God, thanks to him. Look at everything he's done. Isn't he amazing? 
So he sings this when we gather together, like here. Um, and this is a metaphor, of course, of his showing up and singing, but surely it's no less than him actually being with us today, right now. And this is the cosmic reality that we get to step into, even as like 20-odd random people at a cricket club together, singing and praising God together. This is the cosmic reality we get to step into, that Jesus, the Christ himself, is here. He's singing a song, one that talks about God's goodness more than our own, of God's love despite our hate, of God's power in our lack. He is here now as we sing. His voice joins ours, and through what he's done, we create a new sound, a new song, one that calls every man, every woman, every child in this room and outside, in Charlton and Manchester, to the ends of the earth. Because when we gather, this is holy, because we've been made holy together, and because he's here with us. So it's true when we gather together. It's also true when we scatter together. Uh, now, if you're in the church and you are a family, we are never scattered alone. We might not physically be next to people, but we're always together in the things that we do. We're always with each other. So that's why I say scatter together instead of like scattered separately, because we're gathered together here, and then separately we go our ways, but together. And in our scattering, Christ is still singing. It's not like this is not true on the, all the other hours of the, of the week. And our connections during the week from very spiritual things, like meeting up to pray together, to things that don't feel really spiritual, like a quick text, text asking if someone's okay. Jesus is singing, and he's singing, declaring God's name. He's singing God's praises to us. And this is a really good thing, because most of our lives exist out of this little meeting time, exist out of our little missional community meetings during the week. And the implication of this means that all of life is sacred. All of life is sung into by Jesus. All of life is called to holiness, not just a meeting. And in the pinnacle of a toddler tantrum, or in the pub enjoying each other's company, watching TV, or going to work, we're in this together. And by we, I also mean the Trinity. You get to bring that to work with you. So if all these things are true, so what? How should our lives be any different? Is it just kind of an interesting theological point? Oh, cool, we're in a family, and Jesus is with us, sort of, but we can't see him, so kind of not really, but not in the way that I really get. Well, what does it mean? Here's, this is where Romans uh, 12 comes into play. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So we are a family. So we're called to act like a family. That's kind of four quick implications of what it means to be part of Jesus' new family. The first one is that this new family is countercultural. Every family has its values, its traditions, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. When I was growing up, I, my parents were super strict on grades. I had friends whose parents weren't super strict on grades. Our morality is tied to our community. That's, what, that's kind of how it works. And we should expect differences because we're in Jesus' family. We're not in another person's family. And so being in Jesus' family naturally connects and also conflicts with the way that our culture works at different points. And we should celebrate when they connect. Equal human rights, caring for those who are homeless, being tolerant of others' values, these are all good. This is all what it looks like to be in Jesus' family. But of course, there are conflicts too. And where there are conflicts, as Christians, we aren't here to tell the rest of the world how to live. We're here to remind those who follow Jesus what the way of Jesus looks like. So when the culture's sexual ethics conflict with the way of Jesus, we love people we disagree with, 
but we have a different ethic on sex for ourselves. We're always tempted to live more comfortably, to either hate people or to become exactly like them. It's a much easier way to live. But Christianity is this kind of like craggy middle ground that's hard sometimes. The same thing goes for money and materialism. We don't live for it, but we don't hate money. We don't think money's horrible or evil. We're called to be sacrificial in how we give, how we share our things. And that means our lives should be altered because of our generosity. That's what sacrificial giving means. I'm not just talking about money, and I'm not just talking about money to Redeemer. I'm just talking about all of the money and stuff that you have. How do we use it? Because God's family gives us a better treasure than just searching after money and stuff. Now, this is all going to sound terribly invasive. And to a rugged individualist's ears, it is terribly invasive. And it's a sea that we're swimming in. We don't like commitment. We'd rather be individuals than a family. I would much rather be an individual than a family. But if we follow Jesus, part of the way that looks is you are now part of a family. Nobody said it was going to be easy, and if they did, I'm sorry that they lied to you. But this way of living, as hard as it might be, is so much better than living any other way. This new family is countercultural. Also, healthy family members ask when in need. Uh, so many times I've talked with someone who's gone through something really hard and they kept it within and didn't tell anyone. I'm always tempted to say, like, why didn't you tell us or tell somebody or somebody could have helped? And the answer is almost always along the lines of, like, oh, I didn't want to come across as needy or I didn't want to make someone else feel like they had to care for me. Um, it's, of course, that makes you seem a lot more honorable than maybe you are. I was actually caring for somebody so much, I didn't tell them really what I needed, which is not really honorable at all. The truth is, we're all needy all the time. There's not a surprise to anybody. Like, no one is going to be surprised at how needy you are because we are all needy. I don't know what kind of facade we think we're holding up there. We're shamed because we're not enough by ourselves. We were never meant to be, by the way. So we're shamed, and we're also prideful because we so desperately want to be enough by ourselves. And in that kind of shame and prideful, toxic mix, what do we get? Silence. Loneliness. Our prize is we get to be lonely. Yeah. It is with traversing the river of social indiscretion, of being seen as needy, that we get to the other side of being loved, accepted, supported. And the support we can give as the new family of God is more than just human beings loving each other, as great and as wonderful as that is. It's actually supernatural because, remember, God himself is in our midst and gives us the real rescue we need. And that's what salvation looks like in the day-to-day. That's what salvation is. So please ask when you're in need, and not just in the big things, and the small things, like a family would, because that's what we're supposed to be. So if we're going to be in need, um, we should give. <laughs> if we're asked to give, whether, whatever the thing might be, um, we should. If people ask, let's not leave like a deafening silence and be like, uh, my thoughts and prayers are with you. When people ask for prayer, actually pray for them, even as you're typing, I'm praying for you. How many people have done that? Oh, yeah, I'll pray for you, or I'm praying for you, and you don't actually do it because you forget or whatever. Let's actually pray for people who need it. Um, all your time is God's, not just the time doing Redeemer stuff. Most often, really, this is just with being with people. You don't need an agenda. just need to be with people. So give when you're asked, but also give when you're not asked. Go out of your way to find out how people are, because not everybody's always going to be sharing their needs openly. So pray for people. You don't always have to tell them about it, although it is encouraging to know that you're being prayed for. And maybe someone just needs a friend. And lastly, healthy families are outward facing. If you've lived in a family where the only people you interacted with, the only people you had time for, the only people you were tightly connected to was your flesh and blood family of all people, that would not only be slightly creepy and the basis for probably really good horror films, it would be uh, incestuous 
It'd be not healthy. For too long, the Christian church has been merely concerned with people who call themselves Christians or at least act the part or only friends with other Christians, only care about other Christians, only have time for other Christians. That's not how Jesus lived. It's not how our brother lived. That's not how we're called to live. The temptation for a circled wagons mentality is that it's safe. But Jesus paid the price for hanging out with people he shouldn't have. The way that Luke writes his gospel, basically Jesus was put to death because of people he ate dinner with. That's who leads us. It's kind of rebel. That's how we ought to be. An inward family is an incestuous family. But we've been empowered for God's mission by the Holy Spirit. And if we're inward focused, we end up directing that energy towards each other, creating these little dramas and little spats between people or being divisive when it comes to like theology or whatever. Yet the power given to us by the Holy Spirit is actually meant to propel ourselves outward as we gather and scatter together, calling those who belong to our human family to a new family. In Christ. Now, all families um, have traditions, some good, some not so good, but one tradition that our new family has been given, um, that our new family gives us, is called communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. This is a tradition only for those who are in Jesus's family. And so, what we're about to do is something that's only for Christians. This is a tradition that Christians from many, many centuries ago have participated in and around the globe. Jesus started it the night. Um, before he was killed. He had his family of disciples over, and they were sharing a meal. In the middle of the meal, he took the bread there off the table, and he said, when you eat, remember me. He took the glass of wine, and he said, when you drink, remember me. And we, his new brothers and sisters, are instructed to continue to do this. And as we do this, Jesus sings over us. Jesus has brought us into this family, not out of anything we've done, At the price of his own death, he brought us in, and by his power, he keeps us in. We've come to Jesus' table with nothing in our hands. When we walk up, there will be nothing in your hands. And he gives us everything we need, and he sings in our doubts, in our rage, in our unbelief. He is singing. In our best attempts and our worst failings, when we're happy, when we're broken, especially when we're broken, he is singing. The bread and wine we're about to joyfully participate in was one through his tragedy, was one through his heartache, was with, by his being broken and given to us through his new life. And this singing Savior is our rescuer. He's our brother. Now, if you aren't in Jesus' family yet, um, this is a great time to take the opportunity to ponder that for yourself. We would love for you to take communion with us as a new family, experience Christ's song in your life. And as we do this, we sing songs together because we find Jesus' voice among our own. Not because we deserve it, not because we bring it here, but because Jesus has brought it himself. So let me pray and thank Jesus for this ahead of time. God, we thank you that we get to hear from you in your word. We thank you you haven't left us as we are, separated from you, from others, lonely without anyone to go to. But through your grace and your grace alone, you allow us to not only participate in this meal, but participate in this new family. This meal symbolizes the family that we live in. We give you praise. We sing to you. And Jesus, in our lives, I pray we would listen for your song more readily than we do now. And when we hear it, we would give thanks to you. Lord, as you sing God's praises in our life, may we respond with the same. I pray in your name. Amen.